You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Revelation 4 is our text. Uh, I don't know how many weeks it's been since we were together doing Revelation uh, 1 through 3. and I'm not. I'm certainly not going to uh, spend a lot of time reviewing. But remember, the whole plan of this approach to Revelation is to take away its fear and to put the book back in circulation for the life of the church, because it's a lot more understandable than we give it credit for. It's a prison epistle. It's a letter that the church in the first century understood well. They understood the metaphors and the images. We, however, have suffered from a distracting history that has let our imaginations run wild and have not been very biblical. Uh, Revelation may be uh, a book that is best understood in the light of the Old Testament. We've said that there's um, some 500 references to the Old Testament, some 400 verses in Revelation. It's soaked in the Old Testament. So the prophets have had a significant role in John's mind as he, in his praying imagination, he sees uh, in the vision of the Holy Spirit what is to come. But it's not a futuristic book. It's not mapping out a calculus of the end times. What it's doing though is showing how worship and judgment spiral together in the history of the church. And so this book has sets up, you're never far from heaven and never you're never far from the worst times on earth. These two are in a dynamic tension. So chapter one introduces Revelation to us, but it mainly introduces Christ. And this there's seven visions of Christ throughout this book. The first vision is in chapter one. The second vision is the composite of all the seven letters to the churches. It takes out one phrase from that initial vision and applies it to each church. And in a way, you need the totality of the church in under, to understand Christ. The, uh, these seven letters to the churches uh, are not limited to the fir- first century, but they become paradigmatic models for us in understanding the church today as well. So, uh, without further commentary on that. Uh, I guess the corollary there is you could always buy the book. Um, uh, uh, 2014 did a pastoral commentary on the book of Revelation. All of this material that I'm saying is gathered from that book. Uh, But let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your help for gathering us together this Lord's Day in the Spirit. We pray for an understanding of your word that really helps us uh, in our life of following you. Um, So please guide our thinking now, we ask, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So we've just come from a suffering church on earth, and chapter 3 concludes with this vision of an open door. Verse 39 of chapter 3, it's not on your text, so I'm just I'm reading from the scriptures right now. We'll get to that text quote in a moment. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come in and eat with them, with that person, and they with me. That open door is going to introduce the open heart that is talked about. Um, well, opening the door is an open heart, and that's going to introduce the, the door that's standing open in heaven. So reading Revelation 4, 1 through 11, it's on your notes. After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back the first living creature was like a lion the second was like an ox the third a face of a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around even under its wings day and night they never stopped saying holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship, worship him who lives, worships him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. When you think of centers of influence and of power, what centers play particularly significantly in your life? When you thought about going to the center, um, not just a rhetorical question. We're small enough and I can hear. Uh, when you think about centers that have made a significant influence in your life. For example, and I don't think there's anybody in here that this is going to be true of, but if you want to make it in country music, where do you go? Yeah. Okay, Nashville's a center for country music. Uh, if you want to make it in acting, where do you go? Hollywood or New York? Um, in business, for your particular brand of business, where would you go? What would be a center? It's the, that's the thing with the advent. They're just so talkative. Uh, always. Business school. Well, and, and what school, though? Usually we think in terms of very specific. Harvard. Harvard. Um, we're aware of centers of power and influence in fashion, in sports, in business, 
in the academy. Um, and in your kind of brand of business, I'm sure that, or work, there's a, there's a center. Um, I, during our time here in, in Birmingham over the last 12 years, four of those years, we went almost on a weekly basis to New York City. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, at the western end of the state, and whenever our family did anything, we always went west. We never went east. I don't know. I, there's reasons for that, I think. But um, certainly not interesting to you. But we went west. Uh, I found it, you know, New York has always been sort of this imaginary center. And to go there and to be preaching and teaching at 64th and Park and at Central Presbyterian Church and meeting people that were at the center of hedge funds and center of power, center of wealth. Um, these were passionate Christians, the ones I met, um, who just happened to be in those positions of influence. But what it did for me was demythologize the center. People are people. They're hurting people. They're longing people. They're lonely people. Um, and it it was a really great experience to sort of be at the center of what people feel is a, is power and wealth and all that, and yet feel, man, Christ really does his work here. Um, and Christ is powerful at the world's center. Um, what we have described here in this passage is the centering throne of Christ. Everything that's described in chapter 4 revolves around the throne of Christ. And we were meant to see what was happening on earth in the description of the seven churches with their struggle with idolatry, with their suffering persecution, with their integrity, with their duplicity. That whole range of experience of the seven churches on earth is now to be positioned in relationship to what's happening in heaven. And so that global church and that uh, experience of what is transpiring in the power and the wisdom at the center of God's throne. That's how I think John is framing this. What's happening on earth simultaneously is happening in heaven. And for the suffering church, for the persecuted church, the church that's struggling with its integrity and faithfulness, it is important to know that this is what's happening at the center. The center. The one that demythologizes all other centers and shows the weakness of all of those other centers. Well, the open heart, uh, that's kind of the conclusion of chapter 3. If you open up your heart to me, I will come in and have dinner with you. And John uh, Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, has this one line that to me pertains well to this. Find the door of your heart and you'll discover that it is the door of the kingdom of God. The open door in the throne of God introduced the next vision in the spirit. John reminds the churches that there is destiny. Their destiny is not determined by the world's political and social forces, but by the sovereign will of God. In the spirit, in the presence of the incarnate one, we anticipate the convergence between heaven and earth. And that leads to an open door 
the Christian contemplation begins at the point, this is by Hans Urs von Balthasar, Christian contemplation begins at the point where the meaning of the swiftly flowing surface of earthly events is broken to reveal their relation to heaven. There's something about the switch. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had just heard, the voice of Christ speaking to me like a trumpet, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. The after this is a debated phrase in interpreting Revelation. Uh, Is it between chapter 3 and 4? Some Christians have speculated that's when the rapture takes place and the church exits and the church is no longer on earth. Um, And uh, now what is transpiring is the vision of heaven. I don't. I think it's a simultaneous vision of the church as well as heaven. So it's more like next. This is next. This is what we're going to see simultaneously um, along with what's happening on earth. We move from table fellowship to throne worship. John's vision of the seven churches is followed by dramatic worship in heaven, and these concurrent realities are inseparable. If this um, open door and John's praying imagination of the throne of God seems like a lot to accept, Think just of how, uh, like the door of discovery has opened up within human civilization. I mean, the continents were not really discovered in any kind of global sense until kind of the 15th century. Um, You think of just the history of science and um, the history of discovery and these open doors, the open door of, of space exploration, the open door of uh, uh, the, the cosmos as well as the microcosmos. I mean, that's all relatively young compared to the history of humanity, these open doors. Um, and we keep discovering how things work. Uh, I mean, in until the 19th century, we didn't have a germ theory. Uh, we didn't know malaria was communicated by mosquitoes. I mean, in the last couple hundred years, there's been this kind of explosion of understanding and knowledge of how for centuries we've lived. Uh, that makes, for me anyways, and maybe I'm peculiar in this, but it makes this open door of heaven more believable. Um, and that goes along with my, I guess, my understanding of science. The more you know of science, the more believable the realities of God and resurrection really are and the reality of heaven. It doesn't in any way take away. Um, so just that kind of thematic development, I think, would be worth pursuing, uh, even if I'm just mentioning it briefly here. Uh, the paragraph before the centering throne in the midst of trial and persecution on earth the apostle John offers struggling believers a vision of the awesome worship and sovereign power of God happening concurrently in heaven and then we get to the description of the throne the centering throne 
The throne centers authority and power. Worship is the centering reality and everything is described in relationship to the center. The Apostle John was concerned for believers to get their bearings. Everything in heaven is God-centered and oriented around the throne of Christ. You know, when we speak of the believer being centered, we usually mean by that someone who's stable, who can be counted on, who's solid. And I'm picking up on that theme, to be centered in Christ, uh, no matter what the circumstances are, uh, speaks of a kind of stability and a security and a shalom in the midst of what may be uh, very difficult circumstances. John was concerned that believers get their bearings. Everything in heaven and God's everything in heaven is God-centered. Orient around the throne of Christ, we gain our orientation by tracking the little words on, from, before, and around. Combine the prepositions with the verbal gravity of encircled and surrounding, and the believers placed at the center. The emerald-like rainbow encircles the throne. Of course, the rainbow makes us think of Genesis. And the 24 elders surround the throne. Remember, we spoke of numbers being very significant, 12 being the number of government, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. Uh, The 24 elders surround the throne, the seven blazing lamps and the crystal sea of glass are before the throne. Everything is centered in Christ. The vision conveys the impression of an encircling brightness around the throne. The light of God's mercy is revealed in a rainbow. Light is just this theme that runs through all scripture, this illuminating understanding of reality allowed by the light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's Psalm 27 line. Uh, Let there be light. And then in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sun and moon because the Lord is the city's light. The refracted light of jasper and ruby recall the high priest's breastplate mounted with precious stones. When the Bible refers to precious stones, it's not for their value. It's not how much they would cost. It's what they do with light that's important. They refract light, bring out the beauty of the stone. The stone is used for the sake of light. Uh, And that's what makes the stones precious. And the breastplate of Aaron had the 12 tribes, each with their own stone. Uh, Four rows of three stones, each stone representing one of the tribes. Jasper and Carnelian are the last and first stones, Benjamin the youngest and Reuben the eldest. And the emerald, the fourth stone, represents Judah. John's readers readily recognize the Exodus breastplate and the Genesis rainbow. The history of God's people is gathered up and centered. The throne stands for atonement and mercy. The 24 elders and four living creatures form a heavenly worship team. We're not needed for the worship in heaven. Uh, They're doing that quite well. Uh, The number 24 is a derivative of 12, with 12 being the symbol of divine government, 12 months in a lunar year, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, 12 gates in the New Jerusalem, 12 angels at each gate, 12,000 sealed, from each tribe and 12 times 12 multiplied by a thousand equals 144,000 represent the signs sealed and delivered believing community. The numbers, remember, we said at the outset are a language themselves speaking of the meaning, the theological meaning. Uh, 
rather than any sort of uh, uh, magical meaning of the numbers. The 24 elders represent the entire believing community, and the four living creatures represent the created order. The number four is symbolic of north, south, east, and west, uh, the uh, all aspects of creation, uh, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the heaven. The four creatures are all aspects of creation, just as the 24 elders are the facets of faith. These creatures symbolize a power which is worldwide and manifold in its operation, which holds up and pervades the entire universe, even transcending it. The living creatures are symbolic of creation and the divine immanence. They are what is noblest, the lion, strongest, the ox, wisest man, and swiftest, the eagle. And stretching out before the throne is what looks like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And some have suggested that that sea is indicative of the baptismal fount. So then, the value of contemplating this worship scene in heaven, running simultaneous with a struggling church on earth, the vision of Christ the center, that life is not all lived on the flat plain, the horizontal humanistic plane. But there are dimensions to our life in Christ that point forward to this kind of reality, this kind of worship. And as I said in the service, that's a lot to believe. Believing in these invisible realities, accepting it by faith that there really is a God who saves, who redeems, who created, who saves, who redeems, and who's coming back. How have you handled the big things to believe? And how can we commend the big things to believe? David Brooks, the New York Times writer in his book, The, the Second Mountain. Uh, he's a wonderful writer, very ironic. You always read him in the New York Times. Uh, and I'd like to think he's en route to becoming a Christian. I don't know if he's there yet. But in The Second Mountain, he kind of believes everything about Christianity, but the big things, incarnation, atonement, resurrection there he's shy and I don't know if he's shy and doesn't want to say it because he's a secular columnist or if he truly is in himself um, not accepting of those great realities this is the large world that doesn't fit nicely into re uh, conventional religious thinking it certainly doesn't fit in university secular thinking even though we have many great representatives, I think, in both of those realms uh, that are speaking of Christ. Any thoughts you have? I guess one, one thought. Um, for years, people learned through stories and symbols 
and you know this is obviously full of many many symbols and using the numbers to represent things and I don't know I just I think it's you can visually see it more so than many other of the of the books of the Bible and it, I mean I think about like my kids and how they you know they yeah. have Marvel Marvel superheroes and this has just that kind of feeling to it even as an adult reading it. That makes sense. So maybe our kids are onto something yeah. in the way of communicating that we've lost in our kind of uh, technical, prosaic kind of language that is there in the poetic, uh, praying imagination. Uh, I don't think that John at all intended for us to draw a picture of this. Uh, I don't think the creatures with all eyes, covered by eyes, is something that he means for us to picture, literally. Um, the imagination sees these, nothing is missing in for the power of these creatures uh, covered by eyes. But if we saw something covered with eyes, it would be like a monster. Um, so the overly literal Western mind sees this and uh, may make it a, a kind of a crazy picture uh, as opposed to the meaning of the symbols. Dressed in white, do we need somebody to spell that out for us? Probably not. Um, crowns of gold on their heads, uh, speaking of, of the authority. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. What's the most exciting concert you've ever been to? Can you imagine that heaven will be greater than that? More pulsating? More powerful? More mind-striking, mind-blowing than that? And the juxtaposition of... Uh, Flashes of thunder and lightning and seven lamps were blazing. What are the seven lamps? Which we just got through describing in the seven churches. It's the church. And you might say, well, what's candle power versus heaven's glory and the power of uh, the light that's emanating from the throne? But somehow these these are held in tension. The light of the church and uh, this... Uh, powerful light of God. These seven spirits of God also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Uh, and everything revolves around the throne. Now, another way of approaching this is what does in your life revolve around Christ? Probably most of you would, would say Sundays revolve around Christ. You're here. Uh, I don't think that's probably what would please the Apostle John. I think what would please the Apostle John is if we said, well, every damn thing revolves around Christ. How I parent, how I spend my money, how I do recreation, how I think about my body, how I think about others, how I'm concerned, everything revolves around Christ. 
And I'm growing in that. I'm learning what is the dynamic. What is the chemistry of that? What's the physics of that? What's the spirituality of that? That everything revolves around Jesus Christ. And if you're saying to yourself <laughs> with that kind of description, well, what's left for me? Damn nothing. And that's how you want it. That's how you want it. That's the way to real human flourishing, real human fulfillment. And that's such a radical word in any denomination you pick that everything gets centered around Jesus Christ. And life in effect says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. On your notes, humility and human flourishing, we long to be at the center. Many people aspire to be at the center of power or finance or pleasure or sport or fashion or entertainment. But our personal experience of these centers of influence and culture quickly tends to demystify them. And that's good. Well, that's great. Second paragraph, the centering power of Jesus Christ differs from all other centers of power and influence. This is what I think is really important. To be centered in Jesus Christ means that we pay attention to what truly matters. The centering power of Christ brings rest and inspiration into our lives and peace and passion into our souls. In Christ, we are at the true center. And I think that this, as I go on to say, leads to the truest form of humility, the humility that does not humiliate, but instead leads to shalom. True humility centers life on Christ rather than self. Humility frees us from the other side, uh, the often subtle, manipulative, and destructive powers of humiliation and egoism. True humility shapes our self-understanding and it strengthens our commitment to God. A theologian, David Wells, uh, now emeritus from Gordon-Conwell in Massachusetts, the self is a canvas too narrow too cramped to contain the largeness of Christian truth. And this is one of the things I think we see in the progression of secular thought, that uh, as we become more and more reductionistic and become more and more critical of other authorities outside of ourselves from which that we would be centered in, it all gets reduced down to the self. The lone, autonomous, atomistic self. And the self can't do it. It can't create reality. Um, it, that's a burden way too much to bear for the self. We were meant to receive what it meant, means to be the image bearer of God. Bottom line, seek the center. Um, and around that center, the exuberance, the exalted character of it all, the power of it, is something that I look forward to in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, the heaven come down and meet God's creation. Um, any thoughts you want to say? Will? Theme of your second son is like, it's like you're in orbit around the center, and your son is in orbit in a way around you, even though he's. Yeah. But that also means that he's 
in orbit around the sun. So it's like everyone in our lives who's in our orbit, if we're orbiting the sun, has it's a help. Yeah. 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 Well, and I thank you know I thank the Lord for it that He loves the family so much. Um, and I see that as a corollary. He may not understand that, but the fact that he really does like being around the family. And he is the most kind of homesick of all the kids. Um, so that's a good observation, a good visual for me to keep in mind. I do think Andrew's. And it, you know, it just helps then also in terms of relating, not being tired of relating. Yeah. That's a good good question, and I don't know as if we really know. We think that the Revelation was written when he was really old, and maybe in his 90s on Patmos, um, under the reign of Domitian rather than Nero, which was in the 60s, because that's too early for what we've got in Revelation. So probably uh, under Domitian when he was in his 90s, and the Gospel of John sometime earlier um, when you begin to think a certain way you really begin to see parallels between the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation uh, even though it's a very different kind of um, mindset but it's like from the same mind so instead of you know, it's still that imagination that's at work in the Gospel of John so vividly that then gets played out in this, you know, different dimension uh, in the book of Revelation. It just seems so Yeah. And the praying imagination, so bold in both. I mean, really playing to the imagination in the visual narrative of the gospel and now in this Holy Spirit-driven visioning of what is coming. But important to hold, I mean, the, the takeaway from all of this discussion is what does it mean for us to center our lives in Jesus Christ? And then do not think that heaven will be boring. It will not be. Let's pray. Lord, as we go into a week, we want to go with your blessing and with the centering power of Christ. Uh, Show us, Lord, ways that the shalom and the true humility and peace can be achieved through our lives centered in you, which we can't do on our own. We do by the grace and mercy of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.